Hello and welcome to another episode of A Slice of Health, the Candid Health Chat podcast, where we slice away health truth from health fiction. Join me and my friends as we challenge common health myths via chit chat powered by several cups of coffee. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and do visit us at a sliceofhealth.club. Let's get to today's episode. Hello health champions, welcome back to another episode of A Slice of Health. Just a reminder, we are in our process of transition and we are going to be coming back as the taboo doctor with lots of videos for you on YouTube as well as ongoing podcast episodes as well. On today's episode, we are joined by Angela Saini, who is an award-winning science journalist, author and broadcaster. She presents radio and television programs for the BBC and her writings have been featured worldwide, including in The New Scientist, Wired and National Geographic. Her book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, was published in 2017, winning the Physics World Book of the Year. In 2020, Angela was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers by Prospect magazine. And in 2018, she was voted one of the most respected journalists in the UK. Angela started her career with ITN on its news trainee scheme before joining the BBC as a reporter and becoming the recipient of numerous awards. In 2019, she was made an honorary fellow of British Science Association. It was a pleasure to talk to Angela today as we discussed race, health and medicine. We discuss how race inevitably finds itself expressed in the way we deliver healthcare and how it also has affected medical research. She gives us suggestions on how research can better understand that race is a proxy for several other better measurable health outcomes and identifiers. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome Angela, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's an honour. Thank you. So you tackle gender in inferior, you tackle race in superior, and we hear you're writing about patriarchy in your new book. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I guess it brings together lots of different themes because I think one thing I've realised over the last few years is that no form of prejudice or injustice actually sits apart from any other. Everything mm-hmm. is completely interlinked mm-hmm. and um just before we jump into talking more about race science and how that permeates into healthcare and medicine especially in the uk how did you make the jump from your academic training as an engineer into writing about science and sociology well um it's not as an abrupt a leap as it might seem mm-hmm. i started writing for the student papers when i was at university and one of the reasons i did that was um like so many other students i got involved in student activism and i joined uh, i became one of the chairs of the anti-racism committee on the student union and so i started writing on race for mm-hmm. the student papers and um if I hadn't done that, I probably would be an engineer now. <laughs> Actually, I wouldn't be a journalist. Yeah. But, th- but that made me want to go into journalism. So that's um, so I covered, for the first eight, nine years of my career, I was just covering everyday news. I wasn't covering science at all. And I went mm-hmm. back to science just because I missed it. And I felt I had, um, uh, I could bring those kind of investigative skills that I'd used in reporting about crime or politics to, to science. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that is awesome. And in when you wrote about inferior and how science got women wrong, uh, I heard you talk about an incident where you went shopping with your little boy and he picked up a pink toy. And uh, I think someone that was it someone at the checkout said to him, are you sure that you want the pink one? Don't you want maybe <laughs> one that was a, uh, what we sort of call a stereotypical masculine colour? How have those social experiences changed the way you perceive gender and sex as well? Well, I think writing inferior completely changed the way I thought about um, being a woman, about, um, I I became far more acutely aware of the gender stereotypes around me. Mm -hmm. And I did apply, I have applied that, I think, in my own life and in my son's upbringing. We try really hard um, not to expose him to stereotypes. Of course Mm -hmm. he does. He sees them all the time in cartoons Mm -hmm. and other things and, you know, at school and even among people who feel themselves to be really fair and free of stereotypes, they can't help saying things like boys will be boys or, mm-hmm. you know, this is, he's behaving like this because he's a boy or she's behaving like this because she's a girl. And I really try and stay away from that and appreciate um, every child for the interests that they have, not to try and impose my own idea of what they should be interested in. And that's not easy. Um, For example, you know, in this country at least, boys are expected to enjoy football and love football. And there's a big culture around boys playing football. And my son is not super into football. And for a lot of his childhood, we've, we've taken him to football coaching and you know try to get him interested in it and even now he's not interested in it but then I've seen other kids who other boys who really had no interest either if when they've been drilled you know all the time you have to be interested in this we're going to take you to this this is the this is the team we support I'm going to take you to the matches who actually do by the age of five or six have a real love of football Mm -hmm. Um, but it just makes me wonder where does that love really come from? Does it come from them necessarily? Or does it come from the fact that your parents just won't let you not, not love this thing? And that's been very interesting for me to see the different ways in which we um, instill our children with certain gendered cultures. And um, for me, I've tried very hard to just let my son follow his interests and not dissuade him from from them whatever they are yeah and and that is interesting you just said something about how our society then directs us into different gender roles and gender um, beliefs and ideas how do you think our genes or the structure of our brains and there's been a lot more research now into the differences between male brains and female brains do you think that that significantly affects us or is it mainly how we're socialized into those roles and patterns of behavior well i don't think there is such a thing as male or female brains as distinct from each other Mm -hmm. there is some great work on this as gina rippon's um book the gendered brain which really demolishes this idea there's also more recently gender mosaic by daphna joel which is a really good uh book on this topic and then there's the wonderful work of cordelia fine like Mm. delusions of gender and testosterone rex and all of the this wonderful body of literature really piece by piece undermines this idea that we are born thinking a certain way because of our gender or because of our sex Um, And as time passes, it becomes clearer that that must be true because, number one, um, I think in Western societies now we're getting a 
a fuller understanding of how complex sex and gender really are that then that gender at least isn't a binary that it doesn't work in these kind of fixed distinct discrete ways that we're that we've been trained to think that it does and certainly don't exist in other cultures. There are many other cultures around the world that don't think about gender in this way. There are some cultures that don't gender children until they're mm. grown up, until they hit puberty. Um, so um, I think I'm glad that we're kind of moving away from that and remembering that the biggest source of difference between us is not because of what gender we are or what race we are or whatever it's because of who we are as individuals that is what makes us um what makes each of us special and distinct and we should take time then to get to know each person as an individual that is great and i think that then brings us very well into talking about superior and how you know we have carried on this idea of race science and you know a lot of people thought that that was left behind in Nazi Germany but what your work shows in Superior is that that's not actually the case and a lot of those ideas have still permeated still exist in dark spaces in the web and also even in the current modern day research that we do today how would you say racism has found a different kind of expression in healthcare research well um when we look at the 19th century, the way that um, doctors in the US, for instance, would distinguish between um, racial groups and the really disparaging terms, sometimes they would talk the ways in which they would take, talk about black bodies, investigating the possibility, for instance, that black Americans had thicker skin or denser bones or that they felt painless than other groups of people. Um, those kind of myths and stereotypes, which were informed by this racialized way of thinking, which is not at all valid. It's not uh, borne out at all by genetics. We are, um, as I keep reminding people, we are one of the most homogeneous species on earth. We're more homogeneous than any other primate. So chimpanzees show more genetic diversity between them than humans do. We are, you know, all those things that you were told when you were a kid about everyone being the same underneath are actually quite true when you look at the basic biology. Um, but this idea of race has, has, which was invented itself by science. So the racial categories that we use were invented by, by enlightenment naturalists, but then elaborated on and hardened over so many years. We can't expect then to just let go of them overnight in the same way that racism exists in wider society. Of course it exists in the way that we think um, scientifically and medically about each other's bodies and those myths sad to say still live on mm. i mean there were um medical students in a southern state and I, I haven't got the full details of this who were asked not that long just a few years ago a survey was done and they found that many of them still believed at least one of those racial myths i mentioned before about um you know density of bones or skin or or pain and that's really worrying that shows that actually at least to my mind, um, medicine is keeping race science alive in some ways. It has is, is become so routine to inappropriately use race as a biological category within medical research. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what you just said about the South, um, I definitely found that in my medical training. So 10 years ago, in my first uh, sort of second years of medical school, I clearly distinctly remember a neurology um, lecturer saying to us that, you know, black people had smaller brains and lower IQs than the, their Caucasian counterparts and black oh women God. had stronger pain thresholds in labor. And that's needed, terrible. Um, and needed less amounts of painkillers. And so obviously those things are still, you know, quite pervasive in, in um, culture. And you also talk about how schizophrenia in our modern day has also then been labeled as a black illness. What, what, what do you say about these classifications that we use for certain healthcare problems like high, high blood pressure or renal problems as, you know, black diseases or Asian diseases? Well, I think um, the doctors can't seem to help themselves when what we've seen this year during the COVID-19 pandemic is, again, racial myths rising and falling, sometimes with, in the space of a few months. So, for example, you might remember around January, February time when there were very few cases of COVID in Africa. And there was this myth flying around social media that black people couldn't catch COVID. And within a few months, around March, April time, when it became clear that black and Asian uh, medical staff, for instance, in London were dying at much higher rates, and that in the US, black patients were dying at much higher rates of COVID, that racial myth became completely reversed. Mm. And there were people saying that black people and Asian people were somehow more likely to die of COVID. I've never seen a medical myth around race be both fabricated and demolished and then refabricated in a different form so quickly. And what that says to me is uh, the fact that we so quickly reach for those kind of um, essentialist explanations Mm. for what we're seeing just goes to show how pervasive racism still is in healthcare Mm. and medicine. Um, We have not left this behind. What is all the more shocking to me, it was only in February that the British Medical Journal came out with its special issue on racism in medicine, showing just how widespread not only racism towards patients is, but racism even towards non-white doctors. So if you're a non-white staff member, you also experience lots of racism. And why do we not look at the social determinants of health then, including racism in healthcare, but also, for example, um, the fact that, and, you know, good research has been done on this in the US. Hardly any has been done here in the UK. But in the US, for instance, people have looked at um, whether being an immigrant raises your blood pressure. It does. Stress, of course, we know is associated with higher blood pressure. But how about the stress of structural racism? Mm. Have we looked at that? Um, So there are so many factors here that lead to the health outcomes that we see. And yet when we see disparities around race, rather than looking at those social factors, everyone suddenly switches straight to genetics, Mm. which is just bizarre because we also know from genetics that it's almost impossible for that to be the case. It's almost impossible for a socially defined group of people to be so genetically disadvantaged that they will die of diseases at higher rates than everybody else. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, And, you know, one thing I've been pushing for this year, I wrote a piece for The Lancet about it, and I'm so glad other people are also kind of lobbying on this same thing. I saw a piece, um, a letter had been written to the National Institutes of Health in the US by a huge number of very distinguished 
American race scholars and health scholars, including people like Dorothy Roberts and Jonathan Marks, calling on the NIH to revisit the use of race uh, um, within medicine and to think more carefully about the way that it uses these categories because it's, it's really scandalous the way that me medicine is so racialized. And what suggestions would you give in terms of that research, so in terms of health research, because I think we have this propensity and desire to put people into groups when we're studying them or trying to do any kind of research. What would you then suggest that we use instead of race when studying, you know, population groups or societies and trying to intervene with sort of health outcomes or healthcare um, interventions? Well, I think wherever race is used, it's almost always as a proxy for something else. Mm -hmm. And so why don't we just go back to the uh, variables for which it's being used a proxy for? So if, for example, we're talking about sickle cell, then which is a very obvious example that of, often gets brought up. Well, sickle cell is found in those countries in the world in which or is common in those countries in the world in which um, malaria is common. So why don't you just look at whether someone has ancestry in a malaria, in a country that is prone to malaria, because those countries are not just some African countries. They're also some countries in which people have pale skin, like in Southern Europe. So um, that would be a much more accurate way of doing it rather than kind of blindly just using race as a variable. If we're talking about hypertension, um, rather than looking at race as a variable, why don't you look at diet? which is, you know, one of the leading causes of hypertension is salt in the diet. Why don't you look at that or, you know, weight or, you know, some other kind of factor. If you're looking at diabetes, look at weight. That's a much more reliable indicator than anything else. Um, so I would say just do that work. It's not difficult to do that work. We know exactly the variables that we're supposed to be looking at. What we're lazy around is actually doing collecting that kind of data because it's easy to collect racial data it's just one box and you already tick it mm. um what we don't collect is kind of this fine-grained grained data around socioeconomic status uh lifestyle where you live your diet all these kind of more complex things but actually um that is what you need mm. Mm. And that, that is, you are right, that that does take a bit more effort in terms of then trying to explore, actually, is there something else underlying these associations that we're seeing? And what has been the backlash to you, you know, making these kind of statements and obviously doing the amount of work that you've done to then produce this book to say, actually, we need to reassess the way that we're doing things. Because I think in science and in healthcare, we try to feel that we're extremely objective because we're yes. doing things based on empirical data, but actually our, our biases exist regardless of how much evidence we have in front of us. So what has that been like? Do you know the biggest resistance I've had, and I have to say among scientists, I haven't had that much resistance. People have been very receptive to the book, which has been great. Mm -hmm. But the biggest resistance I get when I give talks is from doctors, from GPs in particular, and including in my own family. Um, so I've had people say to me, no, we use race and we use it because it's meaningful and it is it does make sense to use it. And I have to pick through the reasons why that's not the case. Um, and I've had doctors write to me saying, um, I had no idea. I had no idea, but you're absolutely right. And then have to revisit their work and challenge 
you know, uh, systems that they're working with. I had a couple, I know a couple of doctors um, through social media who read Superior and have just recently written a letter regarding the hypertension guidelines. So they wrote to a journal complaining about the way that race is used in hypertension guidelines and asking them to think again. And what's amazing to me is that I haven't written anything that new. You know, I haven't, I'm not writing anything revelatory. There have been lots of academics working on this for a very, very long time. And um, maybe it's because the medic medics weren't reading their work. I don't know. Mm. Or maybe that literature isn't, wasn't part of their kind of required reading when they were at medical school. But the benefit, I guess, of being a journalist is that you reach audiences maybe that academic writers can't always reach but in all honesty I'm not saying anything that isn't widely accepted <laughs> within within the fields already mm -hmm. or should be widely accepted already. The delivery as well and the fact that it is more accessible and that you can pick up superior um, just walking through you know what are stones or foils makes it a bit easier for us to actually access that data and access that information get, get getting us to actually question what is going on and how we are doing these things in a sort of day-to-day -day basis. But then that also brings us to the situation where because it's so accessible, there's also the accessibility of pseudoscience in social media and in all those spaces where people are getting a lot more information and having more opportunities to have conversations about this. But then there's the rise of anti-vaxxers and more talk about eugenics and things. What would you say about that in our current climate where everything is so accessible? Well, it's a huge concern and I think scientific misinformation has really shot up the agenda this year. It's something I was working on last year. So I, um, in summer last year, 2019, um, I was getting a lot of racist abuse on mm. social media, a huge amount. And um, I'm not the only one. There are so many scientists and journalists uh, and activists who work in these kind of areas that I work in who also face a lot of abuse and as a result of that I set up a group called Challenging Pseudoscience which now sits under the Royal Institution in London so we are a group of around 30 or so technologists, scientists, journalists, um, social media experts, counter-terrorism experts, a really broad range of people who can address this question of pseudoscience online because I think this is where this really sits whether we're talking about anti-vaxxers or climate change deniers or scientific racists or scientific sexists it all belongs in under the same category which is people trying to push pseudoscience onto the public and they're really good at it they're very very clever in the methods and the tricks that they use. They're very manipulative in pushing emotional buttons, in appealing to, we are all exposed to misinformation. I promise you that if you're on social media, you will have bought into, perhaps even shared some kind of misinformation uh, while you're there because it's just so widespread and it's very difficult to recognize. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons I'm not on social media anymore. It's not just because of the abuse, but also I think these platforms have behaved so recklessly in not clamping down on this problem. They allow people anonymously to share all kinds of nonsense online. And it does real damage. We know this from, uh, you know, from Cambridge Analytica and the Facebook scandal. But also when it comes to science, there is 
nothing i think doing more damage to public trust in um science and scientists and the, uh, people's ability to get hold of good information than social media it's really destroying discourse in so many ways it's polarizing debates um which are far more nuanced mm. um and um it's not as simple as i mean a lot of people think that if people just had the facts that they that would you know that would combat misinformation what they don't understand is when someone has gone down that rabbit hole of whatever they believe whether it's an anti-vax rabbit hole or a flat earth rabbit hole whatever it is it, you can't draw them out with facts you have to draw them out with narratives and you know something that will engage them on an emotional level um in order for them to slowly start to pick, pick apart what they think and engage with their fears as well to help them understand that you know for example vaccination is not 100% safe of course it's not there are a few people a very tiny minority of people who suffer vaccine injury or allergies or whatever and you have to engage with that and just explain you know about risk and you know the importance of accepting a degree of risk in your everyday life and things like that and that is not what we're doing a good job at at the moment i think we're not engaging with with the reasons that people fall for misinformation mm. we're not really addressing that and what would you say the current political climate especially in the west has added to the current move and growth of pseudoscience on on the internet well you know the interesting thing is there is no one demographic um trait that or one one demographic group that is susceptible to pseudoscience mm. that you can't generalize about them what they have in common all these different groups whether you're talking about flat earthers or whatever you're talking what, whichever group you're talking about the one thing they do have tend to have in common is a mistrust of authority so that is one common thread that you see and actually that's growing among everyday people a mistrust of authority um or uh, you know as it's sometimes described as a kind of um failure to trust experts or government and that's also understandable because governments do get things wrong and especially when you have governments for example in the US like Donald Trump who it's very difficult to trust someone who the who we are also told is lying to us sometimes who is deliberately deceptive when you know we have a prime minister now who backed this kind of bus campaign during brexit telling us that we would get so much money back from the eu if we left if we voted for brexit and we now know that that's not true of course trust in authority has been eroded and when that happens it kind of leads to this general distrust of all authority and that includes medicine that includes scientists and um that's the situation that we're in now is that as i said before we've failed to engage with the reasons um that people have the ve very strong emotional reasons that people have mm. for um making choices that to, to others may seem completely bizarre but actually have their own internal logic yeah yeah and obviously going on this journey, because it sounds like, you know, you've done so much work and so much research into trying to produce this amazing piece of work. How have your own views on race changed? Because I think we all have our own 
ingrained views of our identity? Well, it's been a real affront to my identity, if, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have, I'm very fortunate that I have a good relationship with India, which is where my parents are from. Mm-hmm. I've lived there as an adult. Um, uh, I, I still have family there, so I feel like I have a strong connection to the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm honest, um, because of the way that we are so racialized growing up and the way that we are made to believe race works before writing superior i honestly believe there was something indian there must be something indian in me kind of visceral something genetic about me that made me indian and learning that that wasn't necessarily the case that there is you know you know there are no black genes there are no white genes there's no indian gene there's no gene that everyone in india has and nobody else has that just doesn't exist and learning that is a real affront to your identity because then you realize actually identity isn't about biology then it isn't like whatever your skin color may be and of course my skin color is is a signal of my identity in public but that's not um that's not as hard and fixed as i might imagine because there are many other countries in the world in which people have brown skin um and there and of course within india there are people with all kinds of skin colors you know that this isn't a kind of fixed quantity and if it was so obvious then people wouldn't have to keep asking others where are you from you know if it was so obvious it was so tangible we would never need to be asked that question because you'd know straight away from looking at someone so what i i think the way i've come to terms with identity is that this is something that doesn't fully belong to you it actually belongs to as much other people who are looking at you who are interpreting you so i can define myself however i like i can call myself british i can call myself british asian or indian or whatever i like but actually my identity belongs more to the world um and it depends on the time and place that i'm in on the person who's looking at me and deciding what i am and who i am and um that's okay it doesn't matter if identity is this kind of shifting quantity well that's what identity has always been it's never been a fixed thing and um there's actually a lovely book that explores these issues around identity and the lies that bind by kwami anthony appiah in which he very beautifully articulates the way that his identity shifts depending on who's looking at him because he's quite hard to place because of his mixed race identity and um, because of his mixed race heritage. And, you know, I'm totally at peace with that. I'm okay with it. All I know is that I was born in London and I feel, and I am as British as any other British person who lives in this country. And my skin color does not make me any less British than anybody else. That That is great. And you know what you just said about, you know your identity and that then being able to be defined in lots of different ways it, it also just brings me back to what i was saying about sort of iqs and brain sizes is that a fixed thing or is that also something that sociology has a significant role to play in how our iq develops and how our understanding develops regardless of our age our gender or our race Well, IQ itself is not a reliable measure of intelligence. It's very culturally loaded as a Mm. measure um, itself. So I wouldn't want to equate IQ with intelligence. But if we're just looking at IQ, let's say, Mm. um, there is, of course, um, a 
a heritable component of IQ, a genetic component. Um, so, you know, we're not all capable of all exactly the same things as individuals. Um, but it is heavily impacted by how we live, nutrition, for instance. Um, we know that, for example, children adopted into wealthier families, studies have shown their IQ, <laughs> IQ um, results go up. So that just shows it's not a fixed quantity that you're born with and it never changes throughout your lifetime. It is very heavily defined and shaped by your upbringing and your experiences, all these things that we call nurture. Mm. Um, and there are differences between individuals, there's no doubt. The question of group differences, so race and IQ, I think is impossible to answer. One, because race is a social construct. So this idea that there is some genetic quantity that certain population groups could have in greater quantities than others, I think makes no sense. But more fundamentally, um, you can't compare the IQs of groups that live in different circumstances. And when you see kind of right-wingers or far-right far right white supremacists, for example, online, which they do on social media, talk about uh, populations having different IQ levels. That is bogus data. There is no data that we have that reliably compares the, the IQ of different groups of people. We just don't have it. Yeah. And obviously with all of this and the wider conversations that we've been having about race, especially this year, as you alluded to earlier, and obviously in the US, they've had, you know, a lot more significant issues with with race as well what would you then say to people who are already feeling quite marginalized by the system especially in healthcare who feel marginalized by the system and their health outcomes to then also learn that the data that they've been receiving as well might be biased towards telling them that it is specific to their race as opposed to being a proxy for something else what would you say to sort of diffuse that situation in someone who be became emotionally heightened by that? I can completely understand um, the suspicion that many groups have towards medicine mm -hmm. um, and doctors because of the, especially in, in certain countries, but also in, in the UK because of these histories of racism. For example, in the US, the Tuskegee experiment there are so many kind of salient big examples of the way that communities have been exploited and abused um, by scientists and the medical profession so I understand that and I don't think that should be overlooked at all when we when we talk about these issues um, what I do see is in the medical profession in the UK is a lot of very well-meaning, well-intentioned people, including, I have to say, a very high proportion of BAME doctors and nurses and medical staff um, who use race um, in inappropriate ways, not because they're ill-intentioned, but because they just don't, uh, because that's just how they've been trained. And this is what the guidelines say. So it's not that they're in any way you know, trying to hurt anybody or mistreat anybody. It's just that this is how this system has worked for so long. And whoever you are within that system, you will use those guidelines. Why wouldn't you use those guidelines? What else are you supposed to do? You can't start from scratch and develop your own treatments and your own guidelines that you yourself use independently. 
Um, and there are people trying to fix that system right now, trying to look again at how these things are used. But, you know, I often think of medicine. I studied engineering. Sometimes I think of medicine as a bit more like engineering than like any other kind of sciences because essentially what you're trying to do when you know when I was doing engineering there are countless ways to build a bridge and it will work whichever way you build it and medicine is a bit like that there are lots of ways to treat a patient with the same illness and what you're interested in is not what is the best way ever in the whole world it's what will work for this patient and get them better quickly and sometimes that can be a sugar pill you know, sometimes it's yeah, not even true. very complex or or scientific. It can be as simple as just making them feel better mm-hmm. about themselves, not even giving them any kind of treatment. So, you know, this is a, this is a, a profession in which people are other people are trying to fix other people mm-hmm. the best way that they can. And if you just accept that, you know. <laughs> People are trying to do that and um, systems need to be improved. Of course they do. And the racism in healthcare needs to be urgently addressed, which I think there are enough willing people out there wanting to do that. Then I have trust in that kind of system, you know, that there are enough good people out there trying to make it better. And um, I very much hope the vast majority of people in medicine right now are Uh, committed to making it a better place yeah that is amazing thank you so much thank you so much Angela for coming on today's episode it's been an amazing conversation with you where can our listeners find you online since you're off social media oh I'm not on any well I'm on Instagram but I hardly ever post anything but um, if you go to my website I do have a newsletter that I put out very infrequently there's there's only about three or four newsletters a year where, where I just kind of update people on um things but yeah my events and stuff on my website thank you so much for having me on your podcast it's been a pleasure thank you so much and when can we expect your new book to come out oh not until 2023 (laughs) we'll be eagerly awaiting that (laughs) thank Thank you. you thank you for joining us on today's episode do share this podcast with two people who have not heard about us before remember that this podcast in no way replaces advice from your own doctor or physician Do subscribe and follow us on social media. Leave us a review on iTunes so that others can access the amazing content. And do join the club at asliceofhealth.club and drop us some suggestions or questions that you might have. Don't forget to be a health champion wherever you go by separating health fact from health fiction.